0: Welcome into episode 12 of the House of L podcast. I am your dutiful host, Lawrence Holmes, here with you. And I'm excited about this week's episode. It's one of my favorite people. And I imagine it's probably one of your favorite people as well. I'll get to that in a second. After we are done with the interview, I will answer a couple of emails. And I appreciate everyone who has emailed stuff in. You can email the show. House of L podcast at Gmail. And I'll try to answer as many if you want to ask a question about a prior guest, a prior interview, you want to do a sports thing, you want to make a suggestion. All of those things are just fine. And we'll get to that after we're done. I don't want to waste too much time getting into this episode because I thought it was terrific. Lynn Bramer is one of my favorite people. And getting the chance to sit down and talk radio and sound with him was an amazing experience for me. He is an icon in this city. He has made a lot of people over the you know, last 28 years or whatever it is he's been in Chicago wake up with a smile on their face. He is one of the great storytellers in our business. And when you hear him on WXRT, it just sounds different. The jocks at XRT just sound different. They're allowed to do the job of being on the radio. I I think that they're unique, and the space that they have carved out is unique, and there isn't a person there that I don't want on the podcast. Whether it's Terry Himmer or Marty Leonards or Jason Thomas or if I could coax Norm Weiner to come be on the podcast, I, there's no one there who's not interesting. And this week is a, another testament to that. Lynn's also a big sports fan, a big Cub fan. We talk about that in this, but we spend a lot of time talking about the art of DJing and the art of radio. And Lynn is going to give you a history lesson on sound from reel-to-reel to to wax to tape to CD to digital stuff. It was an education for me. I hope it's an education for you. Enjoy. When was the moment that you knew
1: that you were kind of in love with music? Oh, that's a good question. Well, uh, interestingly, my father, who loved classical music, And Woody Guthrie folk songs used to sit me down in front of a Victrola, the kind of record player where your dad would have to put a nickel on top of the tone arm to make sure it didn't skip with the old record albums. And he would play me Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. My mom used to tell me this story, too, uh, in the hopes that it would instill in me uh, an appreciation and love for classical music. Uh, which it did, but of course then his son grew up to become a rock and roll disc jockey. So uh, music was uh, surrounding my ears at a very early age, and I grew up in a household where uh, the the radio station was always turned to WQXR in New York City, which was the uh, classical station there. But at the same time, my father, and I don't know where this came from because his dad was kind of a captain of industry, And my dad loved Woody Guthrie, Cisco Houston, this like Dust Bowl ballads, uh, folk music tradition, and uh, committed a lot of those songs by heart. And uh, we grew up with a box set from Smithsonian Records, I think, uh, in which it was Odetta and uh, Ewan McCall, all these old school folk singers doing old timey music. And we not only listened to that, but as we grew up, my brothers and I I have two brothers. One plays banjo badly, one plays the mandolin badly, I play the guitar badly. (laughs) We we all learn these songs. So at our family get-togethers, we get together at least once every year. We bring out the instruments where only family can hear us. And uh, we sing these ridiculous old folk songs that uh, we learned when we were growing up with my dad. In fact, my dad's only wish for his funeral was that the brothers get together and now with the second generation my son who plays guitar and I have a niece who sings that we would get together and uh, sing at his funeral with the instruments so we sang the song that became a little more popular it's classic um, in uh, Oh Brother Where Art Thou the Cone Brothers movie uh, I'll Fly Away and we sang it and, ragged three-part harmony and we all cried when you're making the decision
0: that you're going to follow your dad's wishes to to do this does it make the funeral itself easier or more difficult because now you know that you have to perform versus just being there and celebrating
1: the life of your father i think that there are so many emotions roiling around when a parent Uh, dies that the difficulty or ease of paying your respects in a manner that your parent wants to uh, kind of quells any kind of anticipatory uneasiness that um, I don't think it made it harder I think it was something we look forward to
0: because I, I always wonder what to do in those situations where I think that sometimes when it comes to funerals that they need to be more celebratory i it's like the way that, that you guys did it feels right to me
1: yeah i mean everybody everybody spoke but uh as soon as you said celebratory i think of uh n- the traditional new orleans mm-hmm. funeral where you you walk in a somber uh, uh you stalk to the you walk to the uh the cemetery and then once uh the burial is over, although New Orleans is not really a burial. Yeah, because it's above, uh, it's it's above a, below ground. Bri- you blow water. <laughs> uh, and, the, and, then it's, and then it's a party. I absolutely believe that it should be a party. And if I ever pass away, although Mary Dixon thinks that I will live forever for obvious reasons, um, I would hope that it would be a celebration.
0: How did the partnership with you and Mary come along to, to be
1: what it is now? Well, uh, she was a fledgling uh, news reporter she came to WXRT back in the days when we had uh, a news department. We had a bunch of people. We had a uh, morning news anchor, an afternoon news anchor. We had a street reporter. And I believe she first came on as a street reporter just about the time that I came back from my Minneapolis sabbatical in 1991 to do the morning show. And my first morning show co-host was Michelle D'Amico, and she left to work for the mayor uh, after about a year and a half, I think. And then Mary Dixon stepped into that role. But famously, Mary Dixon left and came back and left and came back and left and came back. So we've been together on and off for around 20 years. It's it's a long time to spend in uh, that sort of professional intimacy. And I use that word only because if you're doing a morning radio show and you see somebody every single day at 530 in the morning, it's a very strange, bizarre and close relationship. It is. And you guys have been able to navigate it pretty well. Why
0: do you think it works and why do people gravitate to that relationship
1: every morning? Uh, well, you know, Mary is. She's one of the smartest people I've ever met, but she also has a great sense of humor Um. Why has it worked so well? I think we both uh, appreciate the nerdiness uh, that exists within each of us, Uh, not always in the same way. You know, there are passions she has that I'm not nearly as nerdy about, uh, but we do share enough in terms of literature and art and music that uh, I like to say, and I've said this on the air. Uh, I like to think of Mary Dixon as the much older sister I never had. That is not accurate, Lynn. <laughs> as as she is as she is quick to point out, uh, she is not much older than I am. But you know, she's the sort of person that takes it really well. Uh, she's uh, she, she's not going to get she's not she's not going to get angry just because I mention casually that she's much older than than I am, and Truth be told, nobody is much older than I am.
0: That, that also is inaccurate, but I'm going to let it slide because I adore you. <laughs> I found that the radio people have usually there's two levels of geekdom that will make a radio person a radio personality. For me, it's my love of sports. You also have this and we'll get to that at some point. So it's my love of sports and my love of radio. Those two things make me radio, your love of radio and your love of music. You've been able to marry those two things on the air. What's most important when it comes to sharing your love of music through radio?
1: Well, it's it's an easy answer for me because I I was really drawn into radio because I grew up listening to the very beginnings of FM radio and at the time living in New York City. Uh, So my love of radio really was a reflection of my love of music and and the days when you'd sit there with a record album in your hand and looking at the the artwork or looking at the, the liner notes or just gazing out in space and listening to the same record album, side one and then side two and then side one again and then side two again and then going you know it, it's not quite loud enough for me and unbuckling the the Sears speakers attached to the my brother's record player and putting the uh, the 7-inch speakers inches from each ear and then listening to side 1 again and then side 2 again i
0: i did that when i was young and i'm you know i'm much older than you <laughs> that is not accurate um, but but i, I enjoyed I was listening to a record yesterday and I thought about how I should be listening to it. Beastie Boys, Paul's boutique is one of my favorite albums. I think it's one of the best albums ever. And I was listening to the remastered digital copy of it. And I was sitting there going, something's not quite right. Like, I feel like even when I was listening to that on the yellow cassette that it came in back in, in 1989, that there was more to it. I know that radio people and music people talk about this, but is there an element of soul that is missing from digital copies
1: of records? Well, there are, there are a couple of answers to that. Number one, you have to remember when uh, the, the, the great CD revolution took over and vinyl records were uh, uh, re-recorded or remastered or stuck on CDs, that they didn't really think through the transition from an audiophile standpoint and a lot of those first cds of classic albums are abominations of audio quality which is why years later so many labels went and said oh whoa 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 this is this is the remastered cd this is (laughs) uh, you know what we fooled you We fooled you once, but we're going to fool you again and give you the remastered version of the CD you already bought to replace the vinyl you got. Now, there is no question in any audiophile's mind that the sound of analog recording is uh, richer, uh, deeper somehow. uh, And if you want to feel emotional about it, there's definitely something more soulful about a vinyl recording. But a well-mastered CD is is really, really close. The interesting thing to me is that when I first listened to music, it was on top 40 radio in the 60s, on car speakers, or on a transistor radio. Mm -hmm. So when you were listening to, you know, in the mid-60s, it might have been uh, a new Doors single or it was a Motown single, and the quality that you were hearing that was turning you into a lover of this music was, by most standards, uh, antediluvian. It was ridiculously simple. In fact, famously, I haven't checked this on the Internet in the last two years, and I really should, because when I work from memory, that's dangerous, but I always heard that uh, Motown producers would set up car speakers in the studio because they wanted to hear what their recording sounded like in the car or on transistor radio. They didn't want to hear it on studio monitors. That was irrelevant to making something that kids would listen to and buy. How does it sound coming out of the car radio? So you had that kind of really basic, almost tinny sound of early rock and roll, early rhythm and blues. And then there was this progression to uh, to uh, full albums listened to on the kinds of uh, stereo systems where you'd flick the on switch and it would take, you know, 60, 90 seconds. For to power to, up. To just warm up enough, right? Uh, and then you had, you know, the speakers that would fill up the window in your dorm if you wanted to play music to people on the quad that didn't want to hear your music and it just got bigger and audio quality was, was a priority. And then in the intervening deca- intervening decades, it seems as though we've slipped all the way back to now where most people have their music on their phones, have MP3s, uh, Best Buy stop selling CDs, the cars you buy today don't have CD players. Uh, so you're kind of pushed into this retrogression of audio quality where you've gone all the way full circle back to when old guys like me first listened to music uh, in the car uh, on less than excellent sound quality. How much vinyl do you spend in a morning? Uh, I spend uh, very little vinyl. We do have some vinyl in there. There are Some record albums that we just were too lazy to replace or have remained out of print or... Uh, in some cases although this isn't as relevant uh you know there are vinyl versions of classic albums that were remastered for cd that sound totally different for example in in the 80s the drum sound for rock music and for pop music the, the drum sound just changed entirely and it became really really forward so if you A and B'd say ZZ Top, It's Only Love from uh, one of their albums, and you played the intro drums on vinyl, and then you played it on CD, it's a difference between uh, two. So the original vinyl copy is the only copy you can listen to that sounds like what you bought it for in the first place before it was remastered but I'm sorry I got a little off track most of what we play is on a database that contains the history of say 24,000 songs that we've played over the years you know and they're not always in the current library uh, but over the years if you did a search for our library in a database boom 24,000 something shows up so it's coming out of a hard drive, it's coming out of your computer, and you say, what about the sound quality for that? Radio stations do processing mm-hmm. to juice up the way you and I sound and the way music sounds in various ways, depending on the format, depending on, you know, in the olden days they used to speed up 45s to like 48 RPMs because they wanted to sound snappier, no, we need this song to sound faster. Well, these days there there's all kind of processing on the sound. So for an audio file to say, well, how can we be playing, you know, music out of a hard drive? No matter how good the uh, the hard drive version is, uh, you can't tell coming through the radio because there's already so much happening to the sound.
0: There's a ton of compression that will go on to try and make it sound better. I I took a sampling of XRT with other radio stations because it was one of those things I hadn't a hypothesis about and I wanted to test it. So I was listening to, to you. I listened to Terry and I've kind of sampled around. I'm not saying this because you're in the room because I, I worry about this with my home radio station and yes, it's different. It's FM versus AM XRT as a radio station just sounds good. It sounds full. When I'm listening to the over-the-air product, is that by design or is that something that is in my
1: head? I, th- I think it's in your head because for a station like XRT that has always had sort of a purist attitude towards the music and the way we present music, that it's always been a battle with engineers and general managers who want XRT's compression to be up there with the competitors. Because what happens, if you punch around and you have less compression than other radio stations, your station just sounds quieter. I mean, there's a drop-off. You know, you're punching in it's a certain level you're punching. It's kind of like when you're watching TV and the TV commercials come on and it's like 20% louder. Well, you get that percentage louder if you go to a radio station that has higher a lot more compression. So for XRT, the thing was like, back off with the compression, not too much compression. But I think these days we are very competitive when it comes to the sound of the station itself. So I would say our sound would be very comparable uh, to other radio stations. But, uh, you know, if you're hearing the station sound richer than other signals then that's a tribute to our engineering department, and I thank them for that.
0: How much of what is played on your show is determined
1: by you? Uh, There are songs, usually new songs, that are cherry-picked by the music department because they don't want, say, me to steal all the best new tracks and play them in the morning and then Terry may not play them until uh, a certain time. So what they do is they uh, portion out a lot of the new stuff. But during the course of my show, I would say 60 70 to 80% I'm picking songs as I go. Now, a lot of people go, does that mean you play whatever you want? Well, no, if I played whatever I wanted, I mean, just let's entertain Lynn Bramer, uh, people would hunt me with pointed sticks. They, they would go, what is he do- What is he playing? So uh, there's this, this mixture of, of songs to entertain XRT listeners and would-be XRT listeners. Now, because of the way the format is and the history of the station, a lot of those songs coincide with songs that I'm very, very passionate about. But then there are other songs I'm playing because I know that if that band comes to town, they're going to sell out the United Center or they're going to sell out the Chicago Theater. Lawrence, it's not always just about me, just mostly about me. (laughs) So, yes, I'm picking songs, but it's from a gigantic menu, and there are things on the menu you can't order. And sometimes I have to ask for a special dispensation if there's a song really... Off the beaten track that I want to play for a certain reason or for a certain news story, that I like to employ the John Houston in um, what's the John Houston movie with uh, with Jack Nicholson uh, in L.A. and they're fighting over water rights. Oh, uh, Chinatown. Yes, there's a scene. My mother, my sister, my mother. There's a scene there where John Huston, the old creepy guy, turns to Jack Nicholson's character and says, under the right circumstances, a man is capable of anything. And at the time, you don't know exactly what he's talking about. But I like to employ that philosophy for radio, that under the right circumstances, a man is capable of playing just about any song. It seems as if the philosophy at
0: XRT, for the DJs, there is seemingly more
1: freedom for you guys versus other radio stations. Well, that's a very easy answer. Uh, uh, WXRT, and I really shouldn't say this because if anybody in really upper management of our radio company hears this, they're going to go, what? What are you talking about? (laughs) I believe WXRT... And I'm 98% sure this is true. It's the last major market rock and roll station in the country, uh, maybe in North America, where DJs do have the option of picking songs as they go from the menu. Uh, At the other 90 to 98% of the stations, you are presented with every song you're going to play and maybe every line you're going to say on the air, Uh, the dreaded liner notes, that uh, some announcers get. Uh, so, yes, it is, that is absolutely 100% true that XRT DJs have more freedom, certainly than any other DJ in the, the Chicago market at a commercial station. College stations is a different story.
0: What's it like to hold up that wall of the purity of DJing? Because that's what I'm always struck with when I listen to you guys is – there is an actual DJing session that is going on. I feel as if you all are playing a soundtrack for the day and I'm learning something as a listener
1: as I'm, I'm tuning in. How does that develop? Well, you, you know, one of the gifts of working at WXRT, if it's a bright, beautiful summer day, you don't play Eurythmics, Here Comes the Rain Again now if you worked at a traditional radio station where that was part of the the music mix that song would come up and you'd play it no matter what no matter what the day was uh so yes i i think wxrt uh radio dj's are are able to incorporate the feelings of an event what's happening in the world what's happening in your life uh And translate that into some of the musical selections that are made. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And and I can tell you from personal experience, uh, on certain days, there has been a, a certain direction of the music. After great celebrations or great tragedies, you want to convey that communal feeling that the city of Chicago has about something by how you present yourself on the air, how you present the music on, on the air, and uh, when you can, uh, what music you play on the air. You mentioned college DJing. I'm sure that
0: young DJs ask you this all the time, but what would your advice be to someone
1: who wanted to do what you do for a living? I would say uh, that the thing that is not important, necessarily, is majoring in radio or communications. The important thing is learning to read and to write, to learn as much about everything as you possibly can. For example, Mary Dixon, my news anchor, she studied Russian in college. There's, there's nobody saying, you know, if you want to get into radio, you got to study some Russian. That's going to help you. But I'll tell you what. There isn't a sportscaster in America that reads the names of Olympians and tennis players from Slavic countries like our own Mary Dixon. It's almost as if she grew up in St. Petersburg or something like that. But she didn't! She grew up in Dixon, Illinois. Don't start freaking out on me. Uh, So a a general, broad education, I think, is much more important than uh, studying radio. But my best advice is to reach a comfort level on the air. And all... That takes time and more time and more time. I know when I started in radio, uh, you know, it it wasn't just, oh, here I am. I'm doing afternoons on a rock station in upstate New York. It was first I got my toe in the door just a little bit, Sunday morning show, 6 to 11 a.m., and uh, that was it for like a year. And then, you, you know, you work day jobs, any job you could get. While well, you did that one show a week, so uh, I worked in the state education building in Albany, moving books around in their eight level of underground books. Uh, I was a condominium village lifeguard one summer. That was an awesome job because I all you did was really is yell at kids, and the moms loved it because they didn't have to yell at the kids. Stop running! Exactly, it was like you're out of you're out of the pool five minutes. Why would I do? A lifeguard. Get out of the pool. You're out for five minutes. You, you talk back, you're out for 10 minutes. Uh, and then, of course, I had the high fidelity moment when I uh, you know, went from one show a week to two shows a week. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. But then got the really great job at a record store, just like John Cusack in High Fidelity, uh, working behind the counter and uh, uh, playing mind games with people that walked in the store by sizing them up and going watch this i'm going to sell this van halen album in about 20 seconds put down running with the devil on the needle there's some 15 year old kid in there in 1978 and they go whoa what is this man go van halen debut album you gotta get it and at that moment you turn right into jack black and high fidelity just working people on records but that was great because you know you were It was also part of the music industry, and you got to know people from uh, record labels, you got to know music managers, and sometimes cool bands would come in and appear. Talking Heads, November 1977, I have the picture in my office of Talking Heads coming in to do an in-store appearance. Nobody knew who they were. Their first album had just come out. There were about 15 people in the record store waiting to say hi to Talking Heads. And that night, they were the opening act for a horrible band and a little auditorium. Uh, so it, w- it was all working together when I'm doing part-time radio and working at a record store. And I worked at the record store long enough to become, get this, assistant manager. That's when the big bucks are coming in. <laughs> the other <laughs> advice I would say is, if you're looking for big bucks, radio, wrong move. <laughs> that is totally the wrong move. Uh, I don't know if I've ever told anybody this because it's kind of embarrassing. But when I left my first radio job full-time, it eventually became full-time, I was working in Albany, Schenectady, Troy, the Tri-City area. Uh, I was doing afternoons. I was doing evenings sometimes. I was also the music director, working behind the scenes, deciding what music we'd play. And when I left that station for Chicago, I was pulling down $14,000 a year. So sometimes I'll run into somebody who's got, you know, a a real job, as we like to call them, Uh, somebody who's, you know, been a lawyer for 20 years or something. You know, I don't really like what I'm doing. I'd really like to do what you're doing. And I say to them, so let me get this straight. You want to give up a six-figure salary so that you can move to a really small town in southern Illinois and work for minimum wage, part-time, until maybe you get a full-time job? That's a bad plan. Don't do that plan. But for college kids who want to get in radio, go on the air, wherever, whenever you can. Work every holiday. Work Thanksgiving, work Christmas. That's when uh, times will be available to you. And just keep doing radio shows until you don't feel like somebody's about to hit you when you turn on the microphone.
0: It's a, that's a really good advice. It, it truly is. Have you ever been starstruck by anyone that you've met?
1: Yes. Who? Bob Dylan. Why? Uh, you know, I I just I, I held him in, in such awe uh, and as a bad guitarist. Bad guitarists, the first thing they learn are Bob Dylan songs. they are all three chords. It was 1985 Madison Square Garden. It was the tour where... Uh, Tom Penny and the Heartbreakers were backing him up on uh, some of the stuff. Uh, and uh, Dylan was playing Madison Square Garden and we were taking backstage to say hi to him. And as you know, I'm not normally a person who's at a loss for words. And because, you know, I was with people from WXRT and uh, in in terms of the backstage profile, you know, the people that were hanging out there XRT was a big deal, so I was kind of at the front of the line with uh, uh, Paul from Columbia Records, a guy who was running uh, uh, Columbia Records, and so he says, uh, "This is Lynn Bramer from WXRT of uh, Bob Dylan," and this is exactly what I said to Bob Dylan. I said, "I just wanted, I did, I, I just wanted to do, di- um, I, 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 I stuttered for about twenty seconds." and then they had to mercifully move on down the line (laughs) to somebody else. I got nothing out. Uh, So I would say that was starstruck. Yeah, that qualifies. That qualifies as starstruck. I'm a huge fan of Emmylou Harris because uh, she has a voice that could melt the polar ice caps, and uh, she's also one of the biggest baseball fans in America today. There are all kinds of reasons to love Emmylou Harris. And I got to interview her once, and the killer was she was so much nicer than anyone could ever imagine. It just kind of avalanched all the good feelings you would have about a person. Okay, great singer, uh, an amazing legacy, a baseball fan who used to carry around a beeper in the olden days so she with keep up with her beloved Atlanta Braves. Um, and now she's the nicest person I've ever talked to. This is, this is too much. Has it
0: ever happened the opposite way? Where you you felt a certain way about someone
1: and you met them and you went, oh, man, that's disappointing. Uh, yes, that happens all the time, which is w- why some of my best advice is don't go backstage to meet your heroes, folks. Never do that. It's, it's maybe a 10% success rate, but uh, there are some notoriously cranky people. And I don't want to mention any names, Van Morrison, but... Uh, he is just an angry guy. You don't you don't want to meet him. You don't want to get into his vortex of road managers and people working around him. Uh, on record, one of the most brilliant singers and songwriters in the history of rock and roll. But you don't have you don't want to. You definitely don't want to have a drink with him. Uh, but yeah, not such a good guy to meet. But yeah, don't go backstage. Nothing good happens back there.
0: How does a guy who's so clearly tied when you speak of New York, you speak of it beautifully, very fondly? How does a guy who's tied so much to New York become
1: like the biggest Cubs fan in the world? Well, I Marty Leonard's is the biggest Cubs fan in the world, and but you know I'm I'm top something Cubs fans. You know I, I believe that we are judged not so much by what we promise or what we say, but by what we do. So, so if I'm going to forty or fifty cub games over the last 34 years that's a cub fan right sure a, your, your bona fides
0: commitment. are are there i'm uh, just curious what what was it before let and me what did you, it turn
1: into let, let me give you the baseball basics for lynn bramer first of all of all the sports there are i'm clearly uh obsessed with baseball when i was a kid i probably first became aware of listening to baseball games or watching baseball games when they were on TV in around 1960, okay? I'm like seven years old or six, seven years old. And the only team in New York at the time was a team called the New York Yankees. So when I was a kid, the team I first rooted for had my hero, Mickey Mantle, switch hitter. uh, And the New York Yankees went to the World Series when I was a kid in 1960 and 1961 and 1962, and 1963, and 1964. So I thought the World Series meant the Yankees played some other team. Now, interestingly, as part of my baseball development, 1964, at the age of 10 years old, was the end of my innocence. And I'll tell you why. Because in 1964, the New York Yankees played the St. Louis Cardinals, and the Cardinals beat them. And the New York Yankees manager at the time is Yogi Berra. And the New York Yankees management fired Yogi Berra and hired Johnny Keene who was the manager of the St. Louis Cardinals, the team that had just beaten them in the World Series. And for a 10-year-old Lynn Bramer, it was like, the world no longer has meaning. They fired Yogi Berra. They hired the manager from the hated St. Louis Cardinals. Now, how does this translate into uh, childhood affection for the most successful franchise of all time, to a team that is steeped in tragedy and bad fortune? Well, I'll tell you... Some of the kids I grew up with uh, that were family friends, it was a family of boys that kind of matched up with my brothers, and my parents were friends, and they were from Oak Park. And uh, I would play baseball with some of them. You know, I played baseball in the summertime every day, all day. But we would play stickball or fast pitch. In in the Midwest, it's called fast pitch, and you use a baseball bat. In New York, you use a, a broomstick or an actual stickball bat and it's called stick ball, but it's the same thing. You don't need a lot of kids, one or two guys on a, to, uh, on a side, and, and you throw to uh, a wall that has spray-painted strike zone, and it doesn't matter if you're tall or short. The strike zone's the same for everybody. Strikeout so, box is what we used to call it. Yeah, it's a strikeout box, and every day we would take turns with uh, our friends from Oak Park, and I'd be the Yankees, I'd be Bobby Richardson, Tony Kubek, Roger Maris, Mickey Mantle. And then the next day, I'd be the Cubs. I'd be Kessinger, Beckert, uh, Billy Williams, Ernie Banks, uh, Ron Sano, Don Young, whatever, whatever the lineup was at the time. Sometimes we'd actually switch and bat left or right, depending on whether they were lefties or righties. So in the 60s, in my formative years, one of the teams I knew best in the major leagues, other than the Yankees, was the Chicago Cubs. And you have to remember that the Chicago Cubs in the 60s had, what, four Hall of Famers? Sano, uh, Fergie, Banks, Banks, Williams, so that they were one of the cool teams, whether you knew it or not. Uh, So as a kid, we all kind of gravitate towards players we thought were cool or teams we thought were cool. And for me, the Cubs were one of those teams. Now, fast forward, and I get a job at the station WXRT that I've always wanted to work for. It was a legendary station, even when I was working far, far away. Everybody knew about it. So I get this job offer, and as part of the job offer. The guy says to me, Norm Weiner, my mentor, he says, you know, if you take this job because somebody else was trying to hire me, he says, you take this job. I'm going to take you to see the Chicago Cubs in the 1984 World Series. And I knew a lot about baseball. He knew a lot about baseball. Everybody knew the Cubs were going to go to the World Series that year. There was no way anybody's going to beat them. The Padres are certainly not going to beat them in the playoffs. That's not going to happen. So I came here on the promise of the Cubs uh, going to the World Series, and I moved to North Wayne Avenue five blocks from Wrigley Field, and it was all over. I I mean, my mind was pickled. I, I was done. And, uh, yeah, from, let's see, I got my season ticket package in 89 because I used to sit in the right Center bleachers all the time, and I still have a lot of friends out there, and I still go out there and look them up because they're all sitting in the same places. They're always sitting. But I realized that uh, a a couple of things. I wanted to go to the All-Star game at Wrigley Field, and it would be easier if I had season tickets. For sure. And I also was tired of being one of the first people in the bleachers meeting a bunch of friends because it ruins your neck, because you're whirling around. No, these. No, I'm saving it. No, somebody's sitting here. Somebody's sitting. And you're whipping your head around, looking, where are these guys? I'm saving them seats. I got tired of saving seats for people. I wanted to sit down in uh, actual seats. So I'm in the Terrace Reserve, if you're looking for me.
0: I don't mean to change subjects, but you brought up uh, a person who is fairly important to my career, too, and Norm Weiner. What's his impact on Chicago radio?
1: Uh incalculable, really, Uh, the number of bands that will step up in front of a microphone and thank him personally for their careers. Uh, The list goes on and on. Uh, You know, I used to, people say, you were the music director at WXRT. Uh, What does that mean? What did you do? And I said, well, you know, my job was to change musical history on a daily basis. And that was a joke, and it was a <laughs> lie, because it was actually Norm's job to change the musical landscape of Chicago on a daily basis. And whether it's local bands or national, international bands that now count Chicago as a second home, it's due to his love for their music and his commitment to them. And, and uh, his, he had a great sense of loyalty towards a band. You know, it's kind of like... Uh, if we've played you in the past, you've got a leg up. You know, we are we invested not so much in, uh, you know, what's your hit single as much as what's your catalog? What do you got for us? What do you like live? W- what do the rest of the songs sound like? Uh, is this song an outlier or is it a representative of an artist that's going to mean something down the road? Uh, so that's why he won the uh, that special Chicago Award. That's why he's... Uh, um, a guy that's mentioned at every music conference in America. That's why even somebody as lofty in in the radio history as Howard Stern has only spoken glowingly about Norm Weiner. He says, you know, here's a guy, one of the last guys in America who really knows the music.
0: There's There's nothing better for me than that guy saying, I think you're on the right track. Yeah. You know, that he'd be listening to my show and say, I really like something that you did. I'm like, Norm Weiner likes something (laughs) that I did? (laughs) This is great. Yeah. How did
1: Lens Ben start? Uh, It was actually, it was actually um, like everything in radio, a sponsor wanted something special. So Norm said you know, why don't you answer uh, emails from listeners? But I don't think anybody thought it would be any more than a two-liner or a three-liner thing. It kind of evolved into this multimedia uh, with music clips referring to lines, referring to uh, movie references uh, that it has grown into. So now, now it's more like a radio essay. Now it's it's really a. You know what it is? It's a lot of damn work, is what it is. It it takes me hours to do every week, and it's on Mondays at uh, seven fifteen in the morning, six fifteen in the evening, and uh, because of all the stuff that's in there, the music, and the movie clips and stuff like that, it can't be put on a podcast. It can't be put on. So people go, hey, when can I hear that again? I, you got to do it old-fashioned. you got to listen to it on the radio, on the air. That's when you can hear it. Is there something to that? I've been having this discussion with people
0: where we are trying to be multi-platform, that everything needs to be right. accessible to everyone. Is there something to the idea of having something that is just for your radio show or just for a television show or so- something that's not necessarily evergreen to every platform?
1: Well there is something to be said for that I I think it's it's quaint but if you were to ask me would you like Lin's Bin in its entirety to be able to be preserved on the internet I would say yeah <laughs> as many platforms as possible any way you can now sometimes I will I will remix it so it's just me doing a read uh and some of those work with just a dry read some of them I think are better with all the other stuff in there. Um, and sometimes I will publish them as the written word on our website. So there's some, some ways around uh, legalities when I feel like something's really touched a chord, uh, when, when people are really clamoring for something that I can provide it for them in, in some form at least. Who's your current favorite cub? That's so easy. When you said, who's your favorite current, I'm going, oh, this is going to be tough, this is going to be tough. Javi Baez has become a one-man wrecking crew. Now, don't get me wrong. If you were in my house, you would see my uh, son snickering at me as I cursed at Javi Baez over the last few years when uh, a sweeping slider about two feet out of the strike zone would get him on strike three over and over and over again. But... As I think I've conveyed, I've watched a lot of baseball. And here are the things I've noticed. I've never seen a base runner get out of obvious outs as many times as he has. I don't think I've seen a stronger throwing arm in the infield. Have you? I mean, I, I mean to, to go with your history as a Cub fan,
0: Sean Dunstan, when he wanted to unload... I mean, he he could really let it go. Well,
1: yes, he had a very strong arm. Wasn't as accurate as Javi, though. It wasn't as accurate. I think he might have thrown it faster. But in terms of, was it, yeah, it was last night. Uh, Javi was at third. Oh, he's And he did that stab. It was in the outfield. He turned around and, and threw the ball like it was 10 feet away. I remember Brooks Robinson on the Baltimore Orioles when I was a kid. And just thinking, oh, there's nobody that will ever be like this. Javi's arm is a lot stronger than Brooks Robinson. Um, His range is greater than Brooks Robinson. Uh, Jim Desjay
0: said it last night. He said that if you put Javi anywhere on the diamond, he's your best player at that position.
1: God, let me think about that. Even in the outfield, huh?
0: Well, I I think that he'd have a problem in right, because Hayward is amazing. Right, But... I think that he could play center as well as Al Mora plays center.
1: I, I think truly Mora, do. I think Al Moore is a better defensive player than uh, Jason Hayward. I really do. I, I think I'd argue inst- with you there. I think he has an instinct for the ball. I also like the way that he is so confident in setting up for catching the ball, he always catches it in exactly the same place on his body. You know, when he's got a beat on the ball, he puts his glove up, kind of chest high near the shoulder, and no matter where the ball is dipping or diving, if he's got to beat on, he's there. He's going to catch in the same place every time because he just has that supreme confidence of, I know where I'm going to be. I know where I have to be. I know how I'm going to catch the ball.
0: I think he's got more flair than Hayward. I think that that Hayward, and then when you add in Hayward's arm, I mean, yeah. he, he, I, watching him play outfield, it's almost like, You remember those commercials back in the 90s, the Tom Amansky Baseball School commercials? Yeah. (laughs) Jason Hayward looks like one of the Tom Amansky baseball robots where he's all like the throw is always going into the garbage can. It's always making it there. He's he's a lot of fun in in that way. But I'm with you on
1: Baez like he's he's uh, he's electrifying and, you know, stealing home is something that you thought was part of a bygone era. or It's black like,
0: and white pictures of Jackie
1: Robinson stealing home and right, Yogi and, Bear and and screaming that he's out. And, and it's, it's pitchers doing full wind-ups with a guy on third and doing really elaborate wind-ups. Nobody does that anymore necessarily, especially with a guy on base. And then, you know, he casually hits a home run last night to dead center field. Not a cheap home run. And you know i'm talking I mentioned Marty Lenners, one of our dJs, who is the biggest cub fan in the world, and uh, he you know he's he's even nerdier than we are about it. And he was talking about the original scouting reports for Javi Baez forecasts that this guy had more power than you will ever believe, and now we're starting to see it. Just watch out for the uh, sweeping uh, outside slider, Javi Joe Madden said once he lays off that, he becomes Manny Ramirez. And, and I think that he's on his way. And, and the other thing is is the way uh, you know the double he hit last night was, uh, was opposite field. he's been going opposite field. and I think now he realizes he has the confidence that, you know what, I don't have to pull the ball to hit a home run. Nope, I, I, I can hit it I can hit 400 feet the, uh, the other way. I'm honored that you would be on my podcast. I would be honored that Lawrence Holmes would ask me to be on a podcast. Are you kidding me? I'm not kidding you. People want to hear from people like you. Uh, if you say so, uh, you know, I, uh, mostly I spend time with people going, hey, Lynn, yeah, can you keep it down? Uh, yeah, I've heard that one. That's what I mostly get.
0: No, I thank you very much, sincerely. You're welcome. Anytime. I, I appreciate you, this. Lawrence Holmes. Oh, you're I, sweet.
1: I remember when you were just beginning here at the Score Sports Radio 670. Um, It was something else. Well, 1160. 12, 1160 or yeah,
0: I enjoy, the, it's one of the reasons why I enjoy seeing you and Terry Hemmert because you guys are, uh, you, all, you both say the same thing. You go, I remember when
1: you were a baby. <laughs> <And> <laughs> I didn't say you were a baby. <laughs> I didn't say, but that sounds like something Terry Hemmert would say because to somebody who's been in the business as long as she is, she has, uh, everybody by comparison is a newcomer.
0: Well, she and she does, it, like she met my wife for the first time last week And she she did the thing with the hands where you know she was making the small sign like with her hands. He goes, I remember when he was a baby, and now look at him. So uh, I am I am deeply honored that you would be a part of this.
1: Enjoy hearing you on the air uh, solo or when you bring in some of uh, your your colleagues to to join you and uh, go Cubs and go White Sox. I got nothing against the White Sox. I know people believe that about me, but I don't.
0: How passionate is Lynn Bramer about the Cubs? he he really l lo- he i I should probably say he's passionate about baseball and it comes through whenever he comes downstairs they're on the tenth floor we're on the ninth floor when he comes downstairs to talk with me there's always a baseball thing that he wants to talk about one of the really good dudes like one of those guys that I am honored to have been in his presence and I just that interview like blew my mind and there's so much more to explore, but he had been on the air and I got him after he finished his air shift. So the fact that he gave you about an hour of quality programming, I'll just take that as a win and see if at some point, six months or a year down the line, he would sit down again for part two of that conversation. It was terrific. And I'm glad that he, he said, yes, Let me take a couple of emails before I get out of here this week. This from Richard. Richard had a guest suggestion, and his suggestion was my wife, Mel, a.k.a. White Panther. It's actually not a terrible suggestion, and here's why. Mel worked in this business for a really long time. She was the executive producer of our Bears postgame show on the score, she, so she produced Doug and OB. And she's got a lot of fun stories about producing those guys. And even though her name is Melissa, Doug used to always call her Michelle. And it made no sense. She then went on to be one of the first producers hired at MLB Radio. So she's got a lot to say about this business for sure. It's not a terrible idea. As far as family members go, I've been debating interviewing my parents and whether or not it would be worthy for the podcast. I don't know. I think it would because they, they both are pretty good storytellers and interesting people. I don't know if anyone would be interested in it other than me, but I think it would be fun to at least have that capsule of interviewing my parents. Uh, my dad's a published author. He's written a couple of books. He's a university professor. My mom, my mom, worked for 35 years in Chicago public schools. She has a lot to say between the two of them. They have six postgraduate degrees. Yeah. I like to brag on my parents a little bit. I'm still trying to catch up. So yes, Richard Mel is an option to be interviewed and it could happen. We'll see if she's okay with it. She might not be okay with it. This From Ben and Ben in Elgin and appreciate him emailing again, you can email at house of L podcast at gmail.com. He says, do you plan to do any themed episodes for your podcast? You know what, Ben, I've been toying with a couple of different ideas. And since we family, as Bernie Mac would say, I'll, I'll, I'll share them with you. I'm thinking about adding four bear season an extra podcast per week where I just give you my thoughts from the, the couch or the kitchen about how I felt about the bears game that happened. And I'm thinking maybe I do that on Mondays. We shall see. I'm still debating that whether I want to add that on to the rest of the work that I'm going to be doing in the fall, but you know, it's not that hard. I could set up my system at the house. I've, have the mixing board now so it'll sound better overall and I could probably just get down with it and, and do it. I want to do a couple of episodes and we'll see if I can I can get I want to do some themed stuff like you're saying. I want to do how do you do stuff. dot dot dot. So how do you make a bat? I met the guys at Homewood Bat. I'd love to have the, the owner of Homewood Bat talk with me about making bats. So yeah, there are some themed stuff, the themed things that I want to do. I haven't gotten a print person on yet, and I think that's going to change. There's some people that are on my hit list that I want to talk to, like Shannon Ryan, who I think is fascinating. I would really like to talk with John Cass. He and I have been friends for a long time. He has a podcast, and we're thinking about doing a home-and-home. I go on his, and we talk soccer, and he comes on mine, and, and we talk about government and journalism and politics. So we shall see. But I appreciate the, the email. Again, you can hit me up at Podcast at gmail.com. So that will wrap up this week. If you haven't subscribed, please do. I would love for you to uh, subscribe to the podcast. We are on iTunes. If you would like to check us out there, houseofl.libsen.com for the direct downloads. But we're on SoundCloud. We're on Spotify. And we're on iTunes. So if you are listening on iTunes, give us a five-star rating. That would be wonderful. And I promise you another great guest like Lynn Bramer next week. Thanks for listening.